back in the saddle room. Good to see you up here in the city theater. <coughs> and thank you so much, worship team. I know every week you're coming here and helping us out, and we really appreciate it. Thank you. Sorry. I don't know. I think we're good. But thank you, volunteers. And sound crew and PowerPoint, thank you. Thank you, too. All right, we are going to pray, and then I'm going to read our scripture reading for the day. So, Father, we do just thank you so much for this time. Um, thank you for everyone that is here, each and every individual that comes. We just recognize that we are um, your body. Help us to remember that when we see each person. Um, we recognize that you are our head, and you are the only head, you are our authority, and we just ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Um, we ask that you would be with us throughout this next week, and we think of those who aren't here again, Bob and Kathy and all that is going on over, over in Reno, I just ask that you would be with them, be with Bob today as he continues to help, and God just... Heal Kathy's body. We just ask for more and more progress. In Jesus' name. We think of the many others that, that aren't here for all kinds of different reasons. Could be health reasons. Um, could be busy with whatever it is that they have going. I just ask that you would um, be with each person and that you would draw them to you um, and that you would help them. In Jesus' name, Amen. So our scripture reading for today is 1 Corinthians, surprise, chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. It's God's Word. Amen. Children. You were dismissed.
Well, sometimes you need a comedian to tell the truth. Irony has a way of revealing what is really there. Sarcasm can be used like a sword that cuts to the root of an issue. Scientific American defines sarcasm in this way, constructing or exposing contradictions between intended meanings. So in a sense, a lie can reveal the truth. G.K. Chesterton, and he's kind of like C.S. Lewis, you never know whether this is really his quote or not, but from what I could tell it was his. He said, humor can get under the door while seriousness is still fumbling at the handle. And irony and comedy, when you think about in our culture, you think about things like cancel culture and various phrases like that, sometimes if comedians are silenced, we have a problem. Because sometimes popular comedians, again, often filthy, but sometimes can reveal truth by using irony and comedy. And truth is important, to say the least. But here, we have Paul using irony. So he's turning to using, in a sense, comedy, sarcasm, to expose the Corinthians, the church community, for some of the lies that they were believing. And so, the Holy Spirit, at times, can be sarcastic in the way in which this is God's Word, this is God's words to us. There's all different types of genres, ways of writing, ways of speaking. And one way that the Holy Spirit is using Paul to get across truth to the Corinthian church is by using sarcasm. Of course, it's dangerous as well. I can be sarcastic, and I'm not always sarcastic in the spirit, so to speak. My wife can verify that. But we all, I'm sure, have gotten in trouble at times with sarcasm because it can be used in a very wrong way. But it can also be used effectively. And again, to expose the truth. So I think the title of this sermon, Gospel Sarcasm, Gospel Suffering, and the Stupidity of Self-Sufficiency. A bunch of S's. Gospel Sarcasm, Gospel Suffering, and the Stupidity of Self-Sufficiency. I think is what we see in this section. And remember, this is a letter. We can get so used to holding this Bible in our hands and just we continue got to be reminded that this is written to us. It's God's Word. But originally, it was written to this city in Corinth. And just be reminded these are real people. This is a real place with a real culture. Paul going about his business, writing this letter to them. And we've been seeing the different issues and problems that this community has been dealing with. And in the first section, he's continuing to go after them because they are raising leaders to a point that they should not. They are creating rivalries and strife and dissension. And he's trying to give them a different perspective and a different way of looking at the world and showing that the kingdom has a different value system than Corinth did. That various Greek thought, 
was not in accord with the good news of the gospel. And we start to see the stupidity of self-sufficiency. And that's what he's going to go after here. So let's look at the first verse. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos. So again, it's a letter. We've got to look at the context. All that's gone before, all that we've been talking about, all that Bob's been talking about for weeks, um, for what, a month or so, and then I have been talking about the last few weeks is everything that has gone before. Paul is saying all this stuff that we have been learning, I have applied to myself and to Apollos and that it's all for your benefit. Things like the cross being weakness in the eyes of the world. Things like all of us belong together. Don't have an inappropriate view of Christian leadership. Don't create rivalries and just follow a person but follow Christ. Watch out for becoming puffed up. Realize that you are the very temple of God. That you all are the temple of God. You all are God's building. God's garden. That you are His. He is your possession and you are His. That we bow to His authority. And so He kind of flattens everything. Not creating all of these hierarchies. And that all of the tyrannies of, of life, the time, the present, the future, death, all these are yours. That everything is ours. So he's saying, hey, I have applied all of this to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers. And by that he means brothers and sisters. Everybody listening in this church community that you may learn by us, and this is an important phrase right here, because next week and at the end of this chapter, we'll see a lot of imitation. Of imitation. He calls the Corinthians to imitate them. And so he's saying, hey, you'll learn by me and Apollos all of these things that I have been saying. We are going to practice what we preach. And that you'll learn by us not to go beyond what is written. So another problem in the Corinthian church is that they were going beyond what was written. They were adding other things to the gospel, to the good news. They were trying to adapt cultural values, cultural ways of thinking to the good news of Jesus. And he's saying, you can learn by us the way that we do life, the way that we do ministry, the things that we write and preach Learn by those things not to go past what is already written. And that's a danger for all of us. We can try to sync up things that aren't necessarily in accord with the Gospel to the Gospel. And it doesn't work. Sometimes we can do this in a few different ways. We can raise secondary issues to the level of the Gospel and divide over them. And that's not okay. We can pit different church leaders or just maybe read one, only listen to one, always go to one and forget this is a man. And there are many other people in the church and throughout church history. 
So there can be a danger of of treating secondary things as primary. Or we can exchange the authority of Scripture for other authorities. And one of the ones in our culture is the authority of autonomy, that you are yourselves, that you are self-determining. And this is very similar to what they were dealing with too, especially with Stoicism, and we'll see that here in a few minutes. But we can exchange the authority of Scripture for another authority. So we always have this danger of kind of, ah, there's got to be something more than this. It's not just the Gospel. It's not just the good news of a crucified Messiah. We really need to add this thing to our lives. We really need this new experience. Or that word from the Garden of Eden, did God really say that? Maybe not. Maybe there's something else, something a little further. We can do that when we exchange American values more than kingdom values, when the ways of, again, American individualism can can shape us or a political party can shape us more than what the Scriptures are saying. And so we have to be careful not to go beyond what is written. And already we've seen it several times in these first few chapters that I think Paul quotes the Old Testament five times. And one of the ways that he's quoting the Old Testament is to show how God uses a reversal, that that God's way of thinking is oftentimes reversed from the world's way of thinking. And he pulls in a bunch of scriptures to prove that. And there's about five that are mentioned. One of them in the very beginning. When he talks about how the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He quotes, I think in that case, is Isaiah. He quotes Jeremiah. We saw him quote Job. We saw him quote Psalms. And so he stands on what is written to base his view of life and his way of life. Remember, those are not separated. Especially, we can compartmentalize everything. Marriage is over here. Church is over here. Sports is over here. Politics is over here. Religion, you know, like all those different things. But we find that we really can't because you can end up compromising. And Paul sees us as a whole, as a whole person. And this word of the cross and the good news of the gospel as what is supposed to shape and form all of our lives. Not just in our heads, but in the way in which we live. So he's saying, so he's saying, hey, learn from us. Learn from the way that I'm doing life. Learn from the way that I'm appealing to you with Scripture to live according to that authority. Don't go beyond what is written. Why? So that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against the other. You're not going to be puffed up. You're not going to be blown up like a balloon. You're not going to be cocky, arrogant, putting Apollos higher than me or putting me higher than Peter if you are sticking with what is written, if you're sticking with the truth of the Gospel, if you understand what Jesus did. And so, the Gospel has a way of crushing human pride. 
Verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so here we have the serious sin of self-sufficiency. And we're going to see it even in the following verses of Corinthian self-sufficiency. And he starts to use some irony. He starts to use some questions that they should, of course, know the answer to, but they're acting differently. He's saying every single thing is a gift. Everything is a gift. Whether you're a Christian or not, it's a gift. Like you did not get here on your own. Right? You were born without your choice. Here you are. Life. A gift. And so, anytime we're arrogant, it's a little hilarious because you didn't even ask to be here and you are here. You have the gift of life. And salvation works similarly. It is a gift. God comes to you. The word of the cross, the message of the good news is not that you need to work yourself up to God, but that God came down to you in the person of Jesus. He's just saying, hey, Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything you're all excited about, everything you're taking pride in, all of it is a gift. And if you received it, why are you boasting as if you did not receive it? As if you're the possessor and the maker and the creator of all of those things. It's, it's ridiculous. Pride is ridiculous all the way through. It's stupid. The stupidity of self-sufficiency. It's like little children at Christmas receiving gifts and then boasting as if it's just their own, as if almost they're the ones who bought the gift, they're the ones who have it, nobody else is going to touch it, nobody else is going to have it. And you kind of boast in the gift. You go, this does not make any sense. You receive that from us. And so we are people of the gift. And do we act like that? Generosity, grace, gratefulness. Reminders for us all. Because the air we breathe in America, of course, is self-sufficiency. It's me. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And that value system can be a serious sin and offense to God when taken to its very roots. Because it's not true. It's a false way of looking at the world. And Stoicism was one of the stories that they believed in that culture. Remember Greek thought? And one writer talked about Stoicism in this way. I think this helps us. As we try to understand what's happening there, and we've got to be careful when we try to reconstruct everything that might be happening behind the scenes. But we know that Roman thought, Greek thought, there was a lot of Stoicism. One author says this about the Stoic story. The Stoic story of human reparation, so kind of making things right. How do you kind of become a, a wise philosopher, a successful human? The Stoic story of human reparation has at its heart 
the claim that the human being is its own resource and the resolution of its problem. As we progress further and further in the Stoic disciplines, we discover a deeper and more profound ability to rely on ourselves. Stoics will kind of talk about the passions and emotions and how it's hard to control those. So you use reason, use yourself as a way to combat it. Or the various chaos and tragedy that can happen in in nature, in fortune, in life. That, hey, if you can kind of just focus on yourself, control yourself, reason in yourself, you can kind of be your own king. Another picture of Stoicism by the same writer. As great as it may be due to our weakness in passion, kind of like emotion, passions, or ignorance of reason's direction, the Stoics judge our damage as humans, our damage not to be so great as to be beyond self-repair and the future direction of self-care. As long as we learn the habits of Stoic life and build well the fortress of reason within There is no need to receive help of any other kind than what we can offer ourselves. It is true that we may learn from human example how stoic lives look, but our use for them is only illustrative. We do not depend on them in any fundamental way for the possibility of self-repair and future self-care. And so, the stoic story is saying, hey, when it comes down to it, you have your own power and your own resources to deal with all that life throws at you. And Stoicism was one of the things that was likely kind of creeping in to their view of the world. That you can repair yourself. That you can rule yourself with your own reason. That you have the resources inside of you to do that. And Paul is confronting that kind of an attitude. And he's also confronting some of the attitude within the self-righteous religious leaders, even within Judaism. Of that, hey, this message of the cross is that you can't do it on your own. You don't have the resources in and of yourself. Your arrogance about keeping the law or keeping the external law. That, hey, there's a problem deeper within you that only Jesus can take care of. So he kind of comes against religious self-righteousness as much as kind of an irreligious, a non-religious stoicism. Because that's not the Christian story. We are people of the gift. So we shouldn't be prideful. Verse 8, he kind of goes on with the same idea. Already you have all you want. This is kind of when the biting sarcasm starts to pick up. All these exclamation points as you look at this sentence here. He's not, he's not really just telling them the truth. He's, in a sense, he's creating these little lies to reveal that they're actually the ones who are weak. They're the ones living by the wrong story. You have all you want. You have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. They're kind of puffed up in their own pride, their own philosophies. And again, this idea of, of kingship um, was, was common in some of the ways that some of the Stoics thought. 
Here's a few of them. Here's another commentator. One of them, according to Epictetus, and I may butcher these names, the true cynic, that was another one that was around at the time, cynics and stoics. This is, this is one of them. This is what they said. Who, when he lays eyes upon me, does not feel that he has seen his king and master? Plutarch takes a more takes a somewhat more skeptical view of such claims. But some think the Stoics are jesting when they hear that in their sect the wise man is termed not only prudent and just and brave, but also as an orator, a poet, a general, a rich man, and a king. And then they count themselves worthy of all these titles, and if they fail to get them, are vexed. The commentator goes on, This comment reveals that the Stoics were commonly understood to make about themselves precisely the claims that Paul imputes to the Corinthian wisdom. Thus, the most natural inference is that Paul is scolding the Corinthians for adopting an inflated self-understanding based on philosophy alien to the gospel. This right here, I think, is really important and important for us. This certainly does not mean that the Corinthians had consciously rejected the gospel in favor of Stoicism. More likely, they were creating an uncritical mixture of ideas or even arguing that Christianity was the true wisdom that enabled them to attain the aims of the philosophers, just as Philo of, just as Philo of Alexandria was arguing in this same era that the law of Moses was the epitome of philosophical truth. So the idea, there's all these competing claims going on in the world. But we're going to kind of mix it. We're actually the wise people. We're the Christians who got it. We can fit in with this worldly wisdom stuff. We just kind of attach the gospel to it. And we're the ones who, who got it right. Which in itself can be a denial of Christianity. So we must be careful in mixing the values of the culture or even the values of America with Christian values. Because sometimes they are antithetical, especially in attitude. Rights. Individualism. And so he is coming after them for that. You kings, you autonomous individuals, you rule, you find your own self-repair. You're missing the whole gospel. You're missing the whole good news. And he gives some reasons for that in the next verse. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Spectacle. The Greek word theatron, or however you pronounce it. Sound familiar? Theater. In Corinth, there was a theater that seated 18,000 people. So what's the picture that Paul is giving here? It's not this wise philosopher above all of the other philosophers winning all of the people's hearts. But he's saying, hey, when you think about us, you know what we are? We're a spectacle. We're the ones you watch in the theater. We're the ones you watch. Think Gladiator, the movie. Um, yeah, Whether that's a recommendation or not, I don't know. But think Gladiator. <laughs> um, think being in the arena Slayed, executed to death. And that's his picture of, these are what we are. 
These are what the apostles are. These are what the messengers of the good news of King Jesus are. I think God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle. We're in the theater of the world. The whole cosmos, angels, supernatural beings, men, everybody is like looking at this spectacle. And what did they do in the Roman gladiator spaces? They were killed for people's entertainment. Or, like the Roman procession, the victory parade, where they would go conquer somebody, then they would parade people through the streets, parade the prisoners through the streets, and then either send them into slavery or execute them. That's what he's saying. This is the way of apostleship. This is the way of the message of King Jesus. This is what it looks like. Foolishness, ridiculousness in that culture. Stupidity, this makes no sense. But Paul is doubling down. He's contrasting. Oh, you guys are rich. You guys got all your, all your ducks in a row. These are prideful. You're going to sit and debate who is the, who's the top teacher or preacher in the, in the church. He's like, hey, we're a spectacle. That's the picture you should have. Of us. That phrase, last of all. So think of like you go to a concert. Like they're the headliner. You know, you have all the ones that come before, or you go to a show or somebody talking. There's all, concerts probably just the best way. You see the couple bands beforehand, and then you wait. You, you, you went there not for those bands, you went there for the main band. They're the last of all. This is the worst. These are, these are the worst of the criminals. These are, this is where the execution is, what everybody is waiting for to happen. That's what Paul is saying we apostles are. They are the conquered, what one commentator pointed out. The apostles are the conquered. They're not the conquering kings. They're not as if they're kings conquering everybody else, conquering the world inside their own ushering in their own self-repair, but they are conquered. And what does he say? Look again at that verse. The very beginning. I think that God has exhibited us. That this is divine action. This is the sovereign plan of God. This is the way that God did it. God is the one behind all of this weakness. God is the one showing that this is the way the message of the good news comes to the world. And of course, because that's the message of the cross. That's the message of what Jesus did. He conquered by being conquered. So wow, the picture that even God somehow is behind this. This is the divine wisdom. This way of going into the world this way, of living this way, of the good news. Shocking. Scandalous. Doesn't make any sense. But God has exhibited that. We are fools for Christ's sake. Verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Again, sarcasm. So, we're fools. This is foolishness. You are wise. You're the spiritual ones. You got it down. You're the, what one paraphrase or translation added, you are, you are the sensible Christians. 
You're the sensible ones. You're the wise ones. We're the weak ones. We are weak, but you are strong. You were held in honor, but we in disrepute. And just notice how Paul doesn't hide his weakness. You know, American Christians are known for just fronting their weakness all of the time. And sometimes, sadly, we can hide weakness, even in the church. We can hide our weakness. We want to escape it. We don't want it to be seen. Paul doesn't hide his weakness. The way of the cross does not hide weakness. It's like front and center. And so we don't have to hide our weakness. In a few different ways. One, we can enter into other people's. That's what the message of the cross is. We're to bring gospel and goodness to people who have no resources in and of themselves. That's what the good news of the gospel is. We can move toward others' weakness, which sometimes can be even harder than moving toward our own weakness and admitting it. Paul is just laying it out, given the apostolic resume. And a resume that's not impressive at that time. When you go to get a job, you list all the impressive things that you've done and all of your accomplishments, and here's Paul listing all of his. And in the eyes of that world, it would be foolishness. To the present hour, so right now, like right now, as I'm writing this or dictating it, I forget. But to this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. So there's no prosperity gospel here. We are poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. Again, in that culture, there would have been a sharp class distinction. And you see it later with the issue of communion and other things, of kind of the rich versus the poor. And Paul is saying, we're actually on this side. We're the lower status. They would look down their eyes, some of them, at those who engaged in manual labor. Maybe a patron or somebody would help pay a rich, wise philosopher. And he's saying, I work with my own hands. What kind of a philosopher is that? Out making tents. I'm exhausted with my own labor. You know, the blue collar, white collar distinction. And so that's what Paul is saying. Just things that would be offensive to them. We labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. Again, just these reversal of of the values of the world or sometimes just the natural way of responding. When we are reviled, we bless. When I'm reviled, I want to revile. I don't want to bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. We keep going. When we're persecuted for the gospel, we keep going, we continue, we stay faithful. When we're slandered, we entreat. Philip's translation put that as the ruin, they ruin our reputations, but we go on trying to win them for God. 
We're out here having our, we're out here being slandered. We're having our reputation ruined. But you know what? We want to win them. Or even as the Corinthians, we want to win you, want to remind you of who you are, of what this good news of the gospel is. Even if we get slandered, oh yeah, that's, that's just Paul. That's just weak Paul and his cute tent making business. There's also a kind of an anti-machismo thing here in the good news of the gospel and the way of the gospel life. At that time, kind of manliness would have looked at, like, hey, if you're slandered, if your reputation is being ruined, what do you do? You stand up and you fight. And he's saying no to that. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. In our therapeutic culture, it's kind of like, wow, Paul, how could you talk about yourself in that manner? (laughs) The scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And this is almost foul language. I'm not going to use foul language. But scum and refuse in our culture is not going to get it across of what he's trying to say that they are. Kind of goes, scum and refuse. That's kind of a funny title. We're not used to talking that way. It doesn't land with the force that it would have landed there. One defined it as kind of like you're the scraping at the bottom of a shoe. Like the leftover yuck. That's what we are. Even at this very moment, right now, this is, this is, this is, this is what I am. The scraping at the bottom of your shoe. Almost foul language. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. There could also be a double meaning here. And sometimes when you're being ironic or engaging in comedy or sarcasm, sometimes you use double meanings. This could also have meant things like scapegoat and sacrifice and ransom. Some of the same word had another meaning. In certain cities, they would sacrifice the criminals to purify the city. Now, of course, Paul is not a criminal. Of course, Jesus was not a criminal. But they were treated, in a sense, as if they were. Jesus, not to equate Jesus and Paul... But he's saying, hey, the, the good news of the gospel is that the criminal, in a sense, is us. We're the rebels against God. And God sends His only Son, the innocent, pure one, to die in our place. Again, a reversal is happening here. To die in our place, to be the sacrifice and the ransom for many. And he's saying, even in which the way the message goes, and the way the message went in the early church was that same kind of thing. They're treated as criminals. They're treated as refuse. And the message itself, the mission of the Gospel, the mission of purification can come in that way. We have the, the irony of the Gospel. That's what we do. We, we Christians, we... We celebrate the spectacle of the slain of the Son of God. Again, it's, there's just a, a craziness to it. 
God made the world. He made the world good. Man sinned. He's not saying, all right, man, come on up. Come on up to me. He's going down into it. The Roman power, the power of the world. Jesus crucified by that power. Conquered, dead, whipped, naked, treated as a slave, as the worst of criminals. And that is how He saves the world. That that is the good news. The irony of the Gospel. That weakness can be strength. Not just in what we believe that is true about the good news of the Gospel, but the way in which this is, this is to go out into the world. This is where it comes in for us. How does this apply to us? Not just what we think and what we believe, but the way in which we live our lives. The way to the wise Christian life is not self-sufficiency. is not avoiding weakness. The way of living the Christian life is embracing it. And the way that we think, the way that we act, the weakness can in fact be strength. And that we live by a different kind of wisdom. We view maturity, we view a healthy person as someone who takes the authority of Scripture seriously, who does not go beyond what is written, as somebody who treats life as a gift. So this isn't like he's not walking around this again, this kind of this ho-hum, oh, poor me, just the weak Christian, blah, blah, blah. That's not what he's doing. Treat life as a gift. There's a, there's a gratefulness. There's a generosity. There's a joy about it. We don't have to be competitive with each other. We don't have to be so partisan in, in attitude. But we can treat life as a gift. We can treat salvation, our glorious salvation, as a gift that we did not deserve and actually exhibit that in our attitudes and relationships with the world. And that we have the way of a crucified king. It's not celebrity. It's not the great exercise of of power. It's not cocky Americana kind of stuff. We serve a crucified king. The word of the cross that's foolishness to the world is the way of wisdom and will be shown that. Father, help us believe that. Because that's what we proclaim when we take communion. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That's what we read at the end of every time. I'm going to get up here in a few minutes and read this. It's what it said. The proclamation that we are celebrating right now is the spectacle of the crucified King Jesus for us that brings us together and saves the world. And so arrogance can bow, can get on its knees. We can embrace the gift that King Jesus has given 
each and every one of us. And we can celebrate that because it's for us. And we can live that kind of life for the world as we remind ourselves of His body and His blood right now. So let's, let's sing and let's come on up and grab the bread and the juice. Exchange it 
someday for a crown to the old rugged cross I will ever be true its shame and reproach gladly bear and you'll call me someday to my home far away where is glory forever I'll share so I'll cherish the old rugged cross tell my trophies at last I lay down I will cling First Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received right there, it's a gift. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Please stand as we close.
Jesus Messiah, Lord of all, His body the bread, His blood the wine, broken and poured out, all for love, the whole trembled, and the veil was